and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's a bizarre original versus remake this month. It's a little different to usual, isn't it? Yeah. Um, personally, it doesn't happen often, but I much preferred the remake to the original. Yeah. And Chris is, again, delivering the end of the episode. At the start of the episode, for every How original versus the remake. end of the episode? <laughs> Yes, it's it's very much the truth. Um, we are back for original versus remake, and we are discussing the toolbox murders. Um, first of all, our poll results. Now I can't be too mad at this one because it's actually really close. Um, we had fifty six percent for the original and forty four percent for the remake. There's literally two votes between it, between the result. Okay, a very Brexit. <laughs> Um, and, and much like Brexit, you know, the, didn't really get the result we wanted. But, no. um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it all shortly. Um, but to begin with, fan mail from the world of social media. Uh, Rick on Facebook wants us to do an episode on Jess Franco's Faceless. Apparently it has a great cast and some great trivia is that it Home Alone robbed about one second uh, in its Paris scene. Okay. Up for more Jess Franco. <laughs> Jess Franco uh, is a director who so far we've seen one good film from and four shit films. Okay, how dare you. Um, two of those are trash classics. Yeah, but they're fun because they're shit. Yeah. But one of them, uh, Bloody Moon... Was actually genuinely good. Yeah. We told people that last week. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Dan Pietro Bono. Uh, I'm, please don't hate me if I mispronounce that. Uh, thinks Candy by last week's film uh, from last week's film Killer Barbies vs Dracula is catchy as hell and would love to see the film. You definitely should go out of your way to watch Killer Barbies vs Dracula. You will have a great time. What song was Candy? Are I only, you serious? I only heard Cunty. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe on my Spotify on repeat now. Uh, so, Horror Does, um, a good friend of mine on Instagram, she wants to check out the Texas text Chainsaw Massacre films. No, I assume she's oh, already seen those. Great choice. Uh, okay, easy mistake. Look who directed the remake. Toolbox Murders films. Uh, can't wait to hear what we think of them. Well... Here we are telling you what we think of them and uh, <laughs> partially not great. And of course, Maz um, is speaking to us as always and thinks that the animated Titanic sounds better than Titanic 2, but they both don't need to exist. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> the animated one does have the better soundtrack. Well, I mean, there is that, but the animated one does not have Angry Tom Zavini. Does it? No. It has a rapping dog, though. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, keep on coming. Horror Call Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horror Call Trash on Twitter. Speak to us about Toolbox Murders. Um, the, the films, not, you know, real life. <laughs> <laughs> well, send us videos of uh, murdering people. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Please um, don't do that. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that, that brings us on to our original verse remake. Oh, actually, before I do, I need to plug 
our Spotify playlist. We now have a Spotify playlist dedicated to all the songs from the films that we discuss. It's Kunti on there. It is on there. Nice. Um, search now. That's what I call horror culture. I over on Spotify, and you should be able to find it. So I've also posted <laughs> I links on social media. <laughs> Out on CD and cassette soon. <laughs> I wish. Um, yes. So that brings us to this most original versus remake, and starting with Toolbox Murders, released in nineteen seventy-eight, directed by Dennis Donnelly. Uh, this is his only film, shocker. Um, but oh, what God. is well, what is quite shocking uh, is that he only directed TV episodes other than this, and that includes episodes of the DA, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man from the seventies, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, Dallas, Hawaii Five O, Charlie's Angels, Heart to Heart, Whiz Kids, The A Team, Simon and Simon, They Came from Out of Space. The the list pretty much goes on forever. Um, he clearly needs to stick with TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but he needed to stick with TV. Made on a budget of $185,000, and it made $512,000 within the US. I could not find a worldwide quotes for it. Um, it was banned here, wasn't it? It was, yes, Someone that's probably why. So on to trivia. Nude model and penthouse pet Kelly Nichols... Uh, using her real name, Marianne Walter, got the role of Diane after the first two actresses backed out because they didn't want to do the total nudity. This was her first of only two mainstream roles and first nude scenes. Lovely. Is it bad that I don't know which one Diane is? Um, she would have been Bath Lady. Would she have been? Wasn't there two know. that had full frontal nudity? I don't know. And the reason I say it's bad that I don't know is because... The women in this film are just disposable, and yeah. I didn't even know the victims at the start had names. So oh, I didn't even. Um, I'm reading out the um, synopsis or, or the plot of the film, um, and I haven't put names for the, literally anyone. in my notes. I've just got them as like victim one, victim yeah. two, or whatnot. Wow, well, yeah. A, a sequel was planned for a 1986 release, but it was never finalized. Thank God. I know. Um, Kelly Nichols took her brothers to see the movie when it was first released, even though she is running around fully nude and masturbates in one scene. There we go. Okay. That's who it is. Um, they saw it at the same theatre she worked at as an usher when she was a teen. How What a lovely family day out, I bet that was. <laughs> in 1979, it was selected for screening at the 12th International Festival, the Cine Fantastico uh, di Terra in Sigis, Spain. How this made it to any festivals is beyond me. In the most shocking facts of all, Stephen King publicly declared this as one of the scariest movies ever made. Well, it scared the shit out of me. The fact that a film so shit and boring <laughs> um, could actually be made. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange one because normally Stephen King gets it right. Like he said, um,. I've seen The Future of Horror. His name's Clive Barker when Hellraiser was released. Obviously, Clive Barker has gone on to be a very well-renowned author and filmmaker. Um, Evil Dead, he said, was, you know, a hit, and look where it is now. This is not as uh, <laughs> popular nowadays as the Evil Dead and Clive Barker. And they paid him to say it. They must have paid him to say it. They probably didn't even say it. It's probably a fucking Stephen King impersonator. I don't know. 
It's, Steve, it's a weird Stephen one. King, the bloke down the road. Yeah. Uh, stuck shelves in the supermarket. In a 2002 interview, Kelly Nichols said she loved being included in the movie poster, especially since the artwork makes her boobs look much bigger than they actually are. There we go. Pamela Ferdin plays a 15-year-old girl, but she had just turned 18 before filming began and didn't see the entire movie until she recorded a DVD audio commentary in 2002. This is her final film role. She did have a few minor TV roles after this and then took up a nursing career in 1979 and then became an animal rights activist. Uh, she revealed in a 1995 interview that she never wanted to be an actress. Her mother made her do it. In fact, the only reason she took this role is because her mother pushed her into doing it. But afterwards, she told her mother she was done with acting. Do you know what? Her mum really wasn't a very nice person, and was she? She made her act in this shit. <laughs> you mean uh, no one in this film had professional training? Um, yeah, I know. Shocking. Acting. Development for the film began in 1977 when Los Angeles producer Tony DiDio uh, wanted to make a low-budget horror film after noticing a successful second release of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He got in touch with a writing team that he knew, rented a print of the film, sat them down in a theatre and gave them one simple mandate. Create a variation on this idea and this film. But besides having a mass killer, this film has almost nothing to do with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And ironically, of course, Toby Hooper did a uh, remake of the film in 2004, which we'll be talking about shortly. Uh, That film completely varied from the plot of the original, um, but it was obviously better received than the original. By us? By us and many other people. In general. Uh, The film was marketed as being a dramatisation of a true story, according to journalist Linda Grust. The screenplay was loosely based on a string of serial killings in Michigan committed by a man who attacked women using various tools. Yeah. And you can tell that it's literally just based off that incident considering everything else in the film. You can tell they're just clutching the straws. Yeah. Because they had, there was clearly nothing else to go on other than the fact that this guy killed people with tools. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple premise, isn't it? Yeah, but they managed to fuck it up. Um, This was part of the Video Nasties DPP list. Yes, don't know why. Well, I mean, I do. You get a woman finger in herself in the bath for about 10 minutes. That's true, actually. And then being killed fully nude after being chased. Yeah. Upon its release, critics complained about the film's misogynistic views towards victimisation and exploitation of women along with its graphic violence and nudity. And, and usually I would defend something like this in general because a lot of times, you know, when this is said about films, there's always a strong female character or some male victims that counteract with the female victims. Um it's not always as insulting as critics like to make it out to be. Like, I mean, you know, look at something like Halloween or even Friday the 13th. There's still a strong female lead in there that saves the day. Mm. Um, you know, there's always something to go by. But this, I completely agree with everything I said. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do feel like even our final girl is treated as a secondary character. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, you know, ba- barely human, you know, um, I don't need masses of character development in a horror film, particularly a slasher film. Um, but 
you know, we don't even get their name. I don't even know no. their names. You know, they're just there to be killed. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be getting into that in a little more detail shortly. Before, here's uh, a bit about Toolbox Murders from 2004. Uh, directed by horror legend Toby Hooper, who you may know as the director of the likes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Poltergeist, Salem's Lot, Eaten Alive, uh, Life Force, sadly. Oh no. Um, Creep Show. Yeah, I believe Toby Hooper to be one of those directors that when he's good, he's very good. But he can be quite inconsistent. Yeah. And uh, a film like Life Force is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely awful. And I think we're in the minority with that one. Um, but I, I do class Toby Hooper in um, a list of directors that I make up in my head every so often when I'm bored. Um, that have only had one truly five-star film. And obviously that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you say that, but I would say Salem's Lot also deserves a five-star rating, but... Okay. That's me. Each to their own. <laughs> Are you counting Poltergeist as a Toby Hooper film? I don't know. And I, I, don't, I haven't gave Poltergeist five stars anyway. No. It's not a five-star film. It's a classic, but it's not a five-star film. No. Close, but you know. And anyway, we all know Steven Spielberg directed it. Uh, anyway, so, so budget is unknown for this one, but one reviewer on IMDb said it was less than one million, which I, I definitely believe. Mm. Uh, and it made worldwide gross was one hundred and eighty-seven thousand nine hundred and ten dollars. So it didn't do very well at the box office, but I think it, it's got its own cult following now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm surprised. It, I'm surprised it wasn't straight to TV. Yeah, yeah. To be fair. Christian Bale stated in an interview that he tried hard to contact Toby Hooper for the role of Stephen Barrows and even personally recorded and sent a screen test of himself but was never called back. So when he didn't get a call back, he just focused on scoring the role of Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman Begins. How things could have been different. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) could have been Stephen Barrows in Toolbox Murders. I know. Uh, the tools in the toolbox belong to Toby Hooper. Lovely. His own personal collection. Lucky McKee was set to uh, originally play the part of the killer, uh, but dropped out to work on his own film, The Woods, in 2006. Never heard of it. One of the production companies financing the film dissolved during f- uh, filming, forcing Toby Hooper to shut down production with only two-thirds of the film actually shot. Numerous continuity errors, plot holes and narrative flaws are the result of Hooper has hastily editing together what he had filmed into a complete film in order to try and recoup financial losses and so that the Addison crew's work wouldn't go to waste. Uh, in the commentary track for the film, Toby Hooper and the writer say state that this did not happen, though. They deny it. And to be honest, I can't... I, I, I'm on the fence about this one. It, Toby Hooper's got so many of these things. These uh, these rumoured stories and, and yeah. such. Um, I'm on the fence because I didn't think it was inconsistent at all. I actually thought it was very solid with its uh, structure and storytelling. It, it said it started a story, it finished a story. and Yeah, I, I feel like if that was the case and there was an unexpected halt to filming, mm. then the 
plot holes or the missing pieces would have been more obvious. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, I didn't. I didn't know that fact until now. So potentially, I would have been looking out for them mm. um, if if I would have known that before watching. But like you said, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a conclusive end yeah. as well. So um, I don't. I don't think. I actually don't think that's true. No. Uh, Sherry Moon Zombies in this. Um, for anyone who doesn't know who Sherry Moon Zombie is, she is the star of all of her husband Rob Zombie's films. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is the only film she appeared in that was not directed by her husband. Uh, she did it out of a personal favour due to Rob Zombie and Toby Hooper being friends. Uh, as she has stated before that she will never be in the movie or project that is not directed by her husband as she has had no desire to be an actress throughout her career. There we go. Throughout her career of being an actress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't... That's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, is she not taking the, you know, job of another working actress? If she doesn't want to be an actress... If she doesn't want to do these projects, then surely someone else is missing out on a paycheck. Yeah. I, it's difficult, though, because, I mean, these roles that she does play in his films are very much Sherry Moon zombie roles. And yeah. I, I can't really picture anybody else playing them. Well, yeah. This is probably the most dressed I've seen her in a Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's always... Um, she's definitely the, the um, hot pants. Yeah. Um, party girl, crazy lady. Yeah. Riding a white horse. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so this brings us to the synopsis for 1978. Now, you'll all be very pleased to know that breaking with recent tradition, I actually made notes whilst watching. I'm not just reading it off Wikipedia. Don't tell me secrets. <laughs> I always tell them my secrets. Yeah, but hopefully they forgot. It's been a month. <laughs> We, we're an open podcast. You can tell us anything and we'll tell you anything. It's, it's fine. This is a safe space. So, here we go. Toolbox Murders, 1978. Try and stay awake. <laughs> we start with a long scene out of an unknown person driving um, with God-bothering music playing on the radio. Oh, and, like, the evangelical God will rise and... Destroy us all yeah. stuff playing on the radio. You literally get it for five really minutes yeah, straight. Extremely long scene. Um, within this scene, we ever so often cut to a young lady who has been the victim of a car crash. Don't know her name, don't know anything about her. And uh, finally, after the credits rolled and all this driving is over with... We see a gloved figure entering a, a what I thought was a motel room, but it's an apartment. Yeah. It's a room in an apartment complex, and they have flashbacks to a funeral. The gloved figure then opens a toolbox as a drunk woman starts having a go at him. <laughs> she's, got, she's got rollers in her yeah. hair or something. Yeah. But she's having a drink. Um, it seems quite early in the day. Um... Apparently, he was meant to be there on Monday. Uh, he switches on a drill, knocks her out, and drills her back as generic country music plays in the background. <laughs> we then see the rest of him, and he's wearing a black ski mask, 
Which is probably the best part of the film. Well, is... it's not, because you can't even wear it properly. No, no. <laughs> but, I, um, I mean, the po- it's got... This film is a good poster. Mm. Let's be honest, this is a good poster. It's a great name. And the whole black ski mask w- would work in any other film. Yeah. It's a video nasty called Toolbox Murders. It should have been so much better than it was. Yeah. Uh, they went cut to a young woman returning home with shopping. She drops the shopping so she can open her front door and then enters but leaves the shopping outside. <laughs> and yeah, and this whole series of events did not need to happen. She could have just brought a shopping inside and been done with it. That would have been it. The dumb bitch then turns on the shower not realising she's left a dress in there to dry. So she's completely soaked. She shouldn't really react to any of no. this. Um, she's obviously in, in some apartments, you know, people hang their dresses up in the bathroom. Um, but this dumb cow has hung it up in there, but far too close to the shower. And it's soaked again. <laughs> and uh, she, she really, seriously, there's no emotion in any of this. Uh, she then changes into just her knickers and a shirt and very calmly goes to retrieve her shopping that she's left by the front door. Conveniently for the killer, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, very, yeah. Um, he comes round the corner to find her picking up her shopping outside the door and he knocks her out and kills her with a hammer. Her neighbour or... Is it her girlfriend? I think it's her neighbour. Her neighbour enters the apartment to have a go at her for leaving <laughs> a mess outside because her, her shopping bags have fallen over in the uh, when she was murdered. Um, and her neighbour gets killed with a chisel as generic easy listening jazz plays in the background. <laughs> <laughs> the killer then looks out the window to see a young lady across the street at her window, dancing in her bra and knickers. For absolutely no apparent reason. No, this is Bath Lady. Yeah, but why is she dancing in her window in her underwear? Because she's a lady of the night. Uh, is she now? Apparently. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. It'll all be revealed by the end of the film. Uh, two older neighbours, a husband and wife, discover the blood on the floor outside the uh, apartment. And then they go inside and discover the bodies and react very mildly. (laughs) We then cut to the police who are in the apartment interviewing the neighbours right in front of the two corpses. Yeah. Like, this is fucking insane. Why are you interviewing the neighbours right in front of the... Not the neighbours that discovered the bodies, but two other neighbours. The DNA is probably all over the place now. Yeah. How the fuck are you going to be able to find... Uh, the, the cops in this film are fucking ridiculous. But it's... But if, if somebody came to our flat and said, hey, someone's been killed across the... You know, uh, in, in another mm. apartment, do you want to come and be interviewed right in front of the corpses? You're <laughs> like, no, mate. No. No, thank you. I believe you. I don't need to see it. The wife of the young couple being interviewed says she doesn't really speak to the neighbours, if you know what I mean. Yeah, she tries to not get too friendly, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know what you mean. No, what does that... Yeah. What does that mean? Someone else says um, she was just... Uh, uh, the girl who was murdered, one of the girls that was murdered, she was disappointed that I wouldn't let her have a dog. 
It's no pets, just humans. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. I, no. What, what do you mean? <laughs> I've got that down as, uh, the young couple chat shit about the dead girl not being allowed a pet. <laughs> Uh, we then have the owner of the apartment enter. Now, what was what was his name? I got it later, but I didn't get it. Well, hang on. Why wouldn't the young couple let her have a dog? They're not a fucking landlord. But it's the landlord, isn't it? The couple? What? Yeah. So, Vance. So, Vance, the owner of the apartment, turns up and tries to act shocked. <laughs> he says it's a... It's a, a la, la, la. He says it's a secure building... So the police think the murderer might be a former resident. We then cut to some lazy bitch who hasn't gone out of bed saying goodbye to her daughter, Laurie, before she makes her way to school. Uh, this is the uh, 15-year-old, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, being played by an 18-year-old. Um, a dude who I assume is her brother tells her off for not waking him up. Bitch, get your fucking lazy asses out of bed. <laughs> 1978, alarm clocks had been invented by then. Fucking hell. We then cut to that evening as a woman slips into a warm bubble bath <laughs> and slips something else when she starts to give herself a treat. <laughs> as a very shit country duet place. It's called Pretty Lady and it's by George Deaton. It's Pretty Lady by George Deaton. It's very country. It's very genetic. It's very genetic. genetic very genetic. Generic and very shit. And we get the whole thing. Yeah. Um, she's fingering herself for a while, isn't she? Yeah. Um, then the killer breaks in and chases her around apart the apartment with a nail gun as the duet still fucking plays. It's like an extended, um, what you call, instrumental part yeah. as well, isn't it? So this lady, um, this is the one that was in Penthouse. She's fully nude and she's being chased around the apartment for a long... You know, all the other killings happen quite quickly. Yeah. Whereas this one, it lingers um, and it's really uncomfortable. Um, he's trying to shoot her, he's a really shit shot, um, until he eventually shoots her in the head after what seems like a lifetime. <laughs> we then cut to Laurie, here she's in her apartment chatting shit on the phone. The killer then enters her apartment and holds his hand over her mouth until she passes out. Her, her brother returns home and cannot find her, but he finds a spilt Pepsi can on the floor. Then her mother returns home, concerned, but the lazy bitch makes her son fetch her a drink first. <laughs> she's like, she's like, oh, where's Laurie? Where could she be? And she's like, I don't know. Oh, well, fetch me a drink first. <laughs> now we'll get to the bottom of this. They then hear a scream as the uh, bath victim's body has been discovered. The police allude to the bath victim's morals potentially being loose. So she was the one that was dancing in the window. And uh, I think what they're trying to allude to um, is that she's some sort of escort or potentially a prostitute or... It's not even the only time in this film they mention it. The morals yeah. of this film is, if you're a slag, you're going to get killed. Essentially. Which is bullshit. At the police station, Laurie's brother is being interviewed. Uh, his name, what's his name? Joey. Joey. 
Joey has been interviewed. The police are concerned that he doesn't remember three good-looking ladies. <laughs> the police suffered. And this scene goes on a long oh, time as well. They can't understand. They don't. They can't match up. Uh, the fact that all these different women have been killed and they've not realised the fact it's all happening in the same area yeah. and they don't understand why Joey thinks Laurie's been kidnapped. Yeah. But all these women have been killed in the same fucking area. Yeah, the, the police believe that a spilled Pepsi can doesn't mean Laurie was kidnapped even though there's been murders in that area. Mm. So she's potentially dead and been left somewhere, you know, but they don't seem very concerned. What they're concerned with is that Joey lives in close proximity to three gorgeous ladies and he doesn't remember them. Yeah. Um, they don't say it, but I think they're alluding to him either being the killer or being gay. <laughs> He's definitely gay. Yeah. Then Joey goes to the apartment of the drunk lady who was killed first and has a long, boring conversation with Kent, the nephew of Vance, about what's been going on and Kent's cousin who was killed in a car crash. <gasps> Is that the car crash victim we saw at the mm. beginning of the film? Ooh. They then go to Bath Lady's apartment and find her dildo. Uh, Kent is very disgusted by this discovery, yeah. isn't he? He is absolutely repulsed. He is. They then notice that she was killed with a nail gun. Because there's a nail stuck in the fucking wall. Um, so the, the idea is that they're going around and cleaning up these apartments. Although I think professional crime scene cleaners I do that. Yeah, I mean, that should definitely shouldn't have been there. No. Yeah, that's evidence. Yeah. Anyway, Laurie's mum starts opening up a bar as another generic country song plays. The manager of the bar appears... And she says that she can sense Laurie is close. <laughs> She's just chatting shit. And this this scene goes on a long time. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't believe you've come in today. Oh, well. Yeah, I hope you oh. didn't watch this film called The Toolbox Murders, expecting some toolbox murders, because oh. you don't get any after the first ten minutes. She could just chat and shit. Uh, Kent and Joey then go to a garage, and they seemingly disturbed Vance, the owner of the apartments who acts weird, just telling them he was fixing something to eat before leaving the room. Um, so, yeah, they're in the, his garage. Um, there's tools everywhere. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sort of walks in, just stares at them, and then, like, I'm sorry, did we disturb you? <laughs> He's like, I was just fixing something to eat, and then walks off. Um, Vance, watch them. We uncut to Vance watching them leave. And we see that Laurie is tied to a bed at his house in the room of the girl who died in the car crash. <gasps> now this, is this halfway through? Is this big? The problem is the big reveal. I think this is more than halfway through. Yeah, but barely. Like this is a final act sort yeah. of um, revelation. But it's like, what? It's just over halfway through. I literally, I have so little notes because nothing happens. Vance then enters the room with food and starts acting fatherly with Laurie. He says, you remember my daughter, Kathy? She was prettier than you. A bit harsh. <laughs> he then chats shit about how the good die young and how the world is full of bad, evil people. Yeah, God wants to kill women whilst they're young to stop the world ruining them. Mm. 
He then confesses to the murders to Laurie and explains that he killed the women because they drank too much and did unnatural things to their bodies. Um, so I'm not sure why... So obviously the first woman was killed because she was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, the second woman, am I assuming that was her girlfriend? Maybe. I don't know, they were in the same apartment, were they? No. Um, so I don't, I don't know what she did so wrong. Mm. Um, left her shopping unattended. Yeah. She's a bit thick. Uh, I've got here, so Vance is played by Cameron Mitchell, who was quite a fairly well-respected actor back in the day. He did a few westerns and such. Quite, fairly prolific and fairly well-known. And I say, Cameron Mitchell hams it up for quite some time, just chatting shit about God, the murders and Kathy. Like, every conversation in this film goes on for far too long. Uh, then Laurie plays along, pretending to be Kathy. Ooh. But she hasn't got a degree in psychology. Got, no. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't untie her. And then they chat shit about what it's like to die. At the bar, generic disco music plays as the police talk to Laurie's mum. The police ask her if Laurie flirts. And he then goes on to say that girls these days, they get around. Um, I've put a little asterisk next to this and said it's a completely fucking pointless scene. The conversation feels like it is deliberately uh, there to lengthen the running time of the film. I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like the director of this film and, and the writer, um, I assume they're the same person. It feels like they've literally just been on a date and got turned down by a girl. And then was just angry at all women. So it's just like, I'm going to write this film about how all girls are slags. Yeah. I think, I think they had a premise. They watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then did everything completely different. Yeah. To Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Then uh, we go cut to Kent, who is snooping outside Vance's house. And Laurie sees him in the mirror. We then cut to Vance entering the room and he starts singing to Laurie. I mean, Cameron Mitchell's really fucking hamming it up by now. <laughs> we then have Kent and Joey who chat with the police officer. Just chatting shit again. Uh, Joey gets his mum's car keys in a completely pointless scene. Uh, like, really completely yeah. pointless. Um, so we see him It's say, oh, um, Joey, I've, I've, uh, no, Kent, I've, I've got to go. And then we see him go into the house. His mum is, I don't know what, sleeping again, probably. Um, he's like, oh, mum, can I borrow the keys? Yes, sweetheart. Yes, you can. Great. And he grabs the keys. Then we see him go to the car. Then we see him drive off. Then we see him pull up at Vance's home. And then he starts snooping around Vance's garage. Um, if you're a toolbox murderer... You're going to lock that garage, aren't yeah. you? So I don't know how uh, Joey got in there. Then Kent turns up and Joey tells him he believes Vance is the killer. Uh, with very, very little genuine emotion on his face. <laughs> then Kent throws petrol at Joey, stating he needs to protect his family. He then sings at Joey as he throws matches at him, eventually setting him on fire. Again, really long scene of him throwing these matches and singing 
Is it Joey, Joey, burning in the night? Or some, some shit, shit like, like that. Vance then chats even more shit to Laurie as Joey screams in the background. Kent enters the room looking shocked and tells Vance he is sick. Which makes no sense. You've literally just murdered someone <laughs> and then you're calling Vance sick for being a murderer. And why is he acting shocked? He knew that mm -hmm. Vance was the killer, surely. Kent then tells Vance that him and Kathy used to shag and they both threatened to kill each other. So, it, it, again, really long scene. So after um, Kent confesses that he used to shag his cousin, um, they follow each other, basically saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm going to kill you. And then they get to the uh, kitchen. Um, Kent cuts Vance. And uh, they continue, now I'm going to kill you. I'm gonna, I can't believe you've done this. This is disgraceful. How, how dare you? How dare you do this to Kathy? All this shit. Um, and then it eventually leads to Vance being stabbed in the stomach. Cameron Mitchell hams it up one last time as he dies. And then we know Kent is definitely evil now because he gives a dollar bath in the sink. He does. Yeah, he's officially lost it because he cleans a bloody doll in the sink. He then unties Laurie, chats shit about who the real Kathy was, and then he forces himself on Laurie. We then cut to the two of them in bed together. Kent tells Laurie that they are now married. He also tells her Joey and Vance are dead. Laurie looks over at a pair of scissors next to her on, on the bedside table, and then we cut to Laurie walking through a car park in a bloody dress. We then get a text epilogue over a shot of Laurie in the car park, and I shall read that to you. Uh, the events dramatised in this film actually took place in 1967. Laurie Ballard spent from 1967 until 1970 in a mental institution. In April 1974, Joanne Ballard, um, who was Laurie's mum, was killed in a single car accident. In 1975, Laurie Ballard married. She and her husband now have one child and live in California in the San Fernando Valley, approximately four miles from where her brother and Vance and Kent Kingsley died. You know, the they end. were desperate for that to lead on to the sequel. So, I mean... She finally gets her revenge and it's completely off screen. We don't yeah. see any of it. So we're allowed to see someone fingering themselves. We're allowed to see someone force themselves on someone else. We're allowed to see, you know, women be murdered uh, at the start, you know. But we're not allowed to see a woman get her revenge and set herself free. Yeah. I mean, that's the cathartic release at the end of a horror film. Yeah. That's that's what we're waiting for, you know? That's the, the basis of every, you know, every slasher film is that final girl finally destroying the yeah. killer or finally ending these murders. Yeah. And we don't get to see it. I understand Joey's murder off screen. They probably couldn't afford the whole fire thing, you know, setting someone on fire, the whole stunt work. I can understand that. 
Um, but this final one, you know, why why did we not see it? We just cut to her in in a parking in a, in a car park. Yeah. Like, why is she even in a car park if she's killed him? Yeah. She should just call the police. Surely Vance had a phone. Yeah, there's... It's ridiculous because... There's there's not a single good portrayal of a female character in this film. Not not one. No. At all. Even the mum, you know... She's obviously meant to be an alcoholic. There's, there's, each and every woman in this film has either got something... You know, some sort of issue or... They're, you know, they're slagging it up or they're killed. Yeah. That's, that's the only reason women are in this film. And that is misogynistic. And Laurie, who is meant to be the heart of the film, you know, we have a whole epilogue about her at the end. You know, she's our final girl. She's the one we're rooting for. She gets absolutely no development no. whatsoever. She's given less screen time than fucking Kent and Joey yeah. and their fucking escapades. Every, every time she's on screen after she's been kidnapped, she's just being, you know, talked to or sung to by Vance. You know, shit. Shit writing. Yeah. And it's offensive. I, I really... I just don't understand. If you haven't got the basis there for an entire film... Either make a short film with the guy going around killing people, and that's it. You know that that's fine. Um, you know, I'm sure that'd still be you know scary enough or whatever. Or just don't make the fucking film. Mm. If, you, if you're gonna rip Texas Chainsaw Massacre off, just rip Texas Chainsaw Massacre off. Do it properly. Yeah. Don't add this whole fucking Joey investigating his sister's disappearance for a whole hour and twenty minutes. It's fucking boring. It is so boring. There is not... There's nothing redeeming about this film at all. And the whole God-botherer murdering people because they sin is has been done to death. Even it's at that like, point. Oh, even at that point in the 70s, it's still been done to death. Yeah. But, you know, it's a film that needed a remake and thankfully it got one. Uh, so that brings us to 2004... Uh, where we start with a title card saying, Every year, thousands of people come to Hollywood to pursue their dreams. Some succeed, some move back home, and some just disappear. <gasps> That's pretty good. I, I think... Has that not been done before? Maybe. I don't know the film. Uh, Daisy Rain, played by Sharon Moon Zombie, goes to her apartment in the Loosman Arms, a former luxury hotel undergoing renovations, and it's beaten to death with a, a hammer by a man wearing a balaclava. And the deaths in this film are actually brutal. So it's not your CGI or, you know, it's it's not your... What you'd expect from modern horror. Mm. This is proper practical effects, old school. Um, that looks better than the original. Yeah. Um, so after that, in another room, new tenants Nell and Stephen Barrows, a teacher and a medical intern, are introduced to the amenities, uh, amenities, and a few of the residents by Byron, the building manager. Amenities. Thank you very much. Byron lives in the same room that Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, stayed in. <gasps> um, Saffron wants to get rid of all of her tea and is sick of hammering. <laughs> 
I feel so sorry for Nan and Stephen. They've literally just moved in and everyone's just barging in, just like fucking shouting stuff at the them. The place is a shithole. <laughs> Julia's looking for love on findyourlove.com because it's 2004 and she has to record <laughs> webcam videos for dating. Yeah, and on a desktop computer. And creepy Austin, the teenager in the building, has hacked into her webcam because it's 2004. <laughs> now shares the lifts with Hans, which is played by Charlie Paulson, the guitarist from Scarpunk band Goldfinger, um, who, who you may know from 99 Red Balloons cover. Is that their most famous song? I think that's the most favourite song. Fav- Favourite. It's not my favourite song, but it's the most famous. Okay. Um, who he was just having a loud argument with Saffron next door. So Saffron's his girlfriend. Um, now calls the police on other noisy neighbours, but it turns out it was just Byron and another neighbour, Hudson, rehearsing lines for an acting audition. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. This fucking building is a nightmare. <laughs> Imagine living there. Oh my god. It's just constant noise all the fucking time. As Stephen works long hours, Nell is left alone most of the time and befriends Julia Cunningham, a neighbour down the hall, and Chaz Rooker, an elderly man who reveals some of the history of the structure, mentioning it was made by Jack Lusman, who disappeared mysteriously and that builders died whilst working on it. <gasps> Nell finds a trinket containing human teeth in the wall, and Ned, the creepy janitor, uh, knows lots about black magic involving teeth. He is an absolute red herring. And it leads to some very clever Silence of the Lambs-esque editing later on, doesn't it? With yes. him. That leads you to think this is the guy who's uh, who's doing all of this. Well, I called him Ned Herring. And Ned Herring, yeah. So Julia has found love and takes love back to her apartment. But that's the only thing we get from that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, Ned, Ned's got a thing for her, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Saffron gets shot with a nail gun for singing badly. Her, her body has been nailed to the ceiling and her mouth sewn shut and she's still alive. Yeah, yeah, that's a big, that's quite gruesome. It is, isn't it? Very, Actually, very good effect. It's a, gru- it's a good effect. I, I do remember the first time I watched just being quite scared by it because it's all quite jarring, really. I mean, I know you're watching a film called Toolbox Murders, but the kills all feel very out of nowhere. In the same way they do in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so it's very telling that it's directed by Toby Hooper. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Austin's mum catches him being a creep. Don't really talk to my neighbours, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Austin's mum catches him being a creep and spied on Julia. Uh, Julia then gets murdered with a drill through the head after he closes his laptop. Now that's a very impractical effect, because it goes right through her head. It does. I I'm I was annoyed that his mum didn't get killed in this film. Yeah. She was quite annoyed. I know he he should have got killed as well, to be fair. She wears an awful red dress. Yeah. Yeah, she does, actually. Yeah. Now, confront, before, though, now confronts Austin after Julia doesn't show up for their run, and she hears his parents discussing how he spies on their neighbour, the one who was the size of a whale, apparently. Yeah. Again, I kind of wish Austin would have got killed as yeah. well. I mean, if if you're going to be in this film, if you're famous for something else, you're going to be in this film. You want a good death scene. He, yeah. ju- he was just the obnoxious neighbour that argued a lot. Uh, Austin's hard drive has apparently been erased by his parents. Whilst looking into Julia's disappearance, Nell speaks with Chaz, who offers cryptic warnings about the nature of the building. And sneaks Nell a note reading, look for her in room 504. 
now takes this advice and discovers there is no room 504 and that all the other floors lack apartments whose number in should end with four. Now goes to the Los Angeles Preservation Society uh, where an employee tells her that Jack Lusman was an occultist who associated with a society that tried to mix science and magic and the symbols, which now copies down on her arm, uh, decorating the building uh, are part of a spell. The blueprints for the Lusman arms also reveal that there is a townhouse hidden within the structure, hence all the missing rooms. And usually I'd bitch about this um, on a original versus remake podcast episode i would rant about how it's unnecessary but here shocker first time i've ever said this about a remake the backstory and the elaborate plot works and it is needed yeah i they're telling two very different stories yeah um i find with with some remakes that uh i find that their only real connection to the original film is the name and a couple of aspects of it. So what's great about this is that The Toolbox Murders is a great name for a film. Mm. A killer wearing a black balaclava murdering people with tools in an apartment complex is a great premise. Mm -hmm. It ends there, thank God. So it's it, it feels like a completely different film to the yeah. original. Uh, now returns home as Hudson is dragged from the top of the lift and killed off screen uh, in a very good scene because now gets in the lift and we can hear some crunching going on above it. Yeah, yeah, that is good. Um, she finds a hatch on the roof of the building that allows entrance into the townhouse where she uncovers a room dedicated to the golden age of Hollywood, torture chambers, and dozens of corpses. Uh, the killer, uh, so this is the scene I was talking about before, we're showing a shot of, of Ned with some tools. Uh, you're led to think, oh shit, that's it. He's the, Ned Heron's the killer. <laughs> uh, but then he is killed by the killer, and uh, his head is sawn into a bus saw, and then the killer rips the other half of it off. Yeah, that was a good... It was a really great gore effect. Yeah. The killer removes his mask to reveals that he is a monster, which the credits refer to as Coffin Baby. What is a Coffin Baby? Uh, a baby that's born in the coffin oh, of someone yes. who's died. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever actually happened in real oh, life, no. but um, that's... Yeah. Maybe. Oh, wow. Austin discovers that the webcam he had been using to spy on Julia had recorded her death, which prompts him to go to Stephen, who finds Nell's notes about the building and goes looking for her along with Austin, Byron and the doorman. The men send Austin to go get the police after they find a passageway into Coffin Baby's lair, which they enter. And Coffin Baby kills Byron with garden shears to the back and the doorman with acid to the face. Well, yeah, it was a grim scene. Yeah. And we liked the doorman as well. And uh, he then chases Nell and Stephen, um, the former of whom terrorises that... Terrorises? Theorises... Words are failing me today. Theorises that Coffin Baby needs death and the Lusman arms to continue existing. Nell and Stephen are found by Chaz, who tries to lead them to safety and reveals that Coffin Baby came into the world when he crawled away... Uh, but clawed his way out of his dead and buried mother's womb. Coffin Baby leaps out from under a pile of human remains, fatally throws Chaz at a wall, stabs Stephen and captures Nell. 
she's then saved by Stephen, who bludgeons Cuffin Baby and knocks a shaft onto him. Uh, the authorities arrive and take Stephen to hospital. And as Nell returns to her apartment, the police lift up the debris that fell onto Coffin Baby, who has now disappeared. <gasps> In a very bizarre series of events. <laughs> very weird. Now, Nell is on, I think, the fifth floor? Very high up. She's high, in, yeah. In the building. Coffin Baby crashes through her window. I mean, literally flies through her window. Yeah, it looks like he's jumped through the window. And tries to kill her, but is disorientated by the runes she had earlier drawn on her arms. Distracts him long enough for a pair of police officers to barge in and shoot him out of a window, causing him to be hanged by a cord that now wrapped around his neck. Uh, the officers check on now, then go to the window, only to find that Coffin Baby has once again vanished, and that's the <gasps> end of the film. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I suppose the flying through the window thing, he is meant to be a supernatural being. He's a monster, so... I suppose. <laughs> I just, I I, I'd love to see... Maybe that's one of the scenes that's scrapped. Maybe we get to see him floating outside the window and charging through. Maybe. It does... <laughs> I really enjoyed the film, but towards the end, it does teeter on the ridiculous. Mm. Um... I I kind I kind of wish that there was more of a uh, human mystery rather than a supernatural one. I mean, it's it's surprising though, isn't it? Like you, yeah. you don't you definitely don't expect it, and I think that's very much this this film heavily relies on the unexpected, um, which is unusual for two thousand and four, a time where a lot of films were very predictable. Um, yeah. It's it's one of the better horror films from the 2000s, for sure. It's one of Toby Hooper's better films from his later career. Yes. Um, and, and just a really great slasher film um, all around. You know, I'm glad they were able to make something great out of something so shitty. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I've got my... I've got a few notes that I made as I was watching the film. So uh, I said... Uh, all good. A film that actually needed remaking. <laughs> Come on, character development. <laughs> Killer is a much better shot with the nail gun. Ned Herring? Yay, the camera doesn't cut away from the gore. Uh, very reminiscent of the Asian horror that was so popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, the whole idea of a woman investigating strange goings-on... Um, in an apartment complex very similar yeah. to Dark Water. Yeah. Um, which, and all those films had a supernatural element to them as well, didn't they? They did. Um, then I said, definitely a Ned Herring. <laughs> nice kill, though. <laughs> then I put, Tita's on the absurd by the end. Uh, then we say, my pro a problem I had was that we established that Nell was physically fit from all the running. <laughs> uh, and I kind of wish we would have seen that come into play in the finale. Well, she was chased by her. She was, but I, I kind of wish she would have been more physical mm. rather than her husband having to sort of hold up that end. And my final note was the font for the credits are fucking hideous. Yeah. Hideous. They are disgusting. I don't know why Toby thought this font was a good idea. Oh my god, it's like you can't read anything. It's not green. 
it's so shit. It really is. Um, but overall, it's a it's a good film. It's a very good film, and I think watch we watched it back to back. I think watching it back to back with the original made us appreciate it even more. It's like, oh my god, there's some substance here. Yeah. There's something to digest. Yeah, I mean, I watched it when it first came out, and obviously, as we know, as a track record on this podcast, if I say something's good, there's a very good chance. If something's good that I watched when I was younger, there's a good chance it's not good now. Um, but yeah, it, it absolutely holds up just as well as it did back then. Gary is the epitome of that meme that's going around uh, at the moment. Where uh, a gay guy, if a gay guy tells you something, it's the best thing, and then they put on a really shit film. <laughs> I quoted that badly, but you understand. What yeah, I mean. I'm. I'm very glad that this uh, has uh, redeemed me. Redeemed, yeah. <laughs> um. So cinematography, scares, kills, and soundtrack. I mean, very much like last month. It's really going to be a no go for the original for most of these things. Cinematography, the original. It, it looks like it is made amateurly and for some films that works for that it doesn't because it just makes it feel more pervy um yeah you know even the death scenes dist- the distraction is the women that uh, that are being killed you know the death scenes aren't that great because you just you know it's just there for tna value it is, and it feels seedy, mm. and it, it kind of, and I've said this on the podcast before, but it kind of makes me feel bad, because I've got no problem with nudity in films, no problem whatsoever. You know, I have no problem with an actress, you know, for whatever role, you know, if, if they're getting paid, then, you know, I've got no issues with it. I don't, I don't think, you know, they're... Um, it's anything against the actress whatsoever. Um, but I just, when it's a low-budget film like this, and it, it it's a seedy film like this, I kind of feel bad. Because I'm like, oh, come on, you know. You know, it's just a bit like, I wish you would have gotten paid more for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, add an extra zero onto your check. Yeah. You know. And as we know, the soundtrack's fucking garbage. Oh, or generic. It's generic all the way. It's shockingly shit. Um, so many songs play for far too long, um, and like the when the the bathtub lady was being chased, the soundtrack was just wrong. It was really a generic yeah. fucking uh, country duet mm-hmm. as she's being traced uh, chased around her apartment. Yeah, it it was just shit. Uh, the same cannot be said about two thousand and four because the soundtrack sounded like it belonged in a film with a much bigger budget. It was very, um, very intense. It, it genuinely sounded like something you'd see in, in a theatrically released horror film that was mainstream at the time. Um, so I was quite impressed with that. It, it wasn't the most memorable, but the way that it actually sounded like it belonged to something bigger worked. It showed how ambitious Toby Hooper was with this film. Yeah, I thought in the remake it's it's slightly generic horror soundtrack, um, but it was an actual horror soundtrack, yeah. so it beats the original just because of that. And cinematography is great. It is shot very much in the same way as Chris mentioned as an Asian horror film. A lot of J horror around that time had a lot of um, bleak cinematography that highlighted the rundown areas that they were set in, and this very much does the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, some of the shots where, you know, where the killer comes out of nowhere, the way they're framed and everything, it, it adds to the shock of it all and the jump scares. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really, really well done. Um, the scares, I, I as, as I just mentioned, you know, uh, if you scare easily, like, like I did back in 2004, uh, this film will scare you. It is a scary horror film. It's, you know... This is what scary movies should look like. Yeah, yeah. It it's it's not. The thing is, it it doesn't push any boundaries really. No. It but it does what it does and it does it well. Yeah. And I've I thought the killer when he took his uh the balaclava off was genuinely quite scary. Yeah. Quite creepy. Yeah. The, the makeup effects on him are really good. Uh, and the kills are fantastic. It, you know, if you yeah, like your body count horror films, there's no way you're not going to enjoy this. If you because, like a bit of gore, yeah, then it, it, yeah, it works. Yeah, and, and the practical effects are so, so good. Um, I mean, even the acid scene, which I assume must have used some sort of digital effect at some point. Mm. You know, even that looks really, really good. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yes. Congratulations, 2004. You are a winner of everything. But we still must discuss characters, and it's a difficult one to discuss considering how different both films are. So I've narrowed it down as much as I could. Uh, with a final girl, 1978, Laurie was played by Pamelin Ferdin, and 2004, Nell was played by Angela Bettis. Uh, Angela Bettis put in a really good performance. She did, she did. The, the thing is, these two roles are polar opposites. Yeah, yeah. Complete opposites. Laurie in the original had nothing yeah. to do yeah. apart from cry and look scared. It's it's almost uh, an unfair comparison because Laurie was a victim of bad writing. Yeah, um, she was tied to a bed for the yeah. majority of the film. Yeah. Of, of the majority of her screen time. Yeah. She was tied to a bed. Yet Nell is a well-rounded character mm-hmm. who gets to actually walk to places. Yeah. Uh, Actually manages to get out of bed. She actually does investigations into what is going on. She doesn't yeah. leave it. You know, she doesn't give up until she knows what's going on. Um, she solves the mystery. Yeah, she could have had a little more to do at the end. Um, but, you know, she builds up a character that you want to root for. Someone Absolutely. you want to be with until the end. Yeah, she's the she's the heart of the film. Yeah. You know? And Angela Bettis does a, a really good job of it. Yeah, so... She's quite a screen queen, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So she is our winner now from 2004. Now onto male side character. <laughs> 1978, Joey, Laurie's brother, played by Nicholas Boovey. 2004, Stephen, Nell's husband, played by Brent Rome and not Christian Bale. Um, opposite way around, Joey's given a lot more to do in the original. Yes. But he's also <laughs> Nicholas Boovey, um, beautiful actor. I mean, not really, but, you know, to cushion the blow, he does a really shitty job. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I feel bad for some of the actors in the original because they didn't really have much to go on. Mm, he did, though. He was given, like, the whole fucking film. He was, but then he all he had to do was have really boring, generic, um, like, conversations with people, but he also had to act shocked or... 
scared in yeah. scenes and he, he couldn't really manage no. it either. No. Um, whereas in the remake, Nell's husband, Stephen, um, he's actually off screen a lot. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, Nell is meant to be alone. It You know, that makes for a more intense mm-hmm. film. You know, um, we said it about Silence of the Lambs, how Clarice is pretty much, you know, solo, going solo for the majority of the film. Nell is very, in a very similar way, is going solo. Yeah. Like Jason Derulo. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we don't get to see him a lot, but... Stephen still wins because he actually has a bit of emotion in his little screen time that he does have. Oh, yeah, he can move his face a lot more. <laughs> and finally, on to the killer. Uh, 1978, Uncle Vance, played by Cameron Mitchell. And 2004, Coffin Baby, played by Christopher Doyle. Who... Oh, excuse me. Actually, he later appeared in a sequel called Coffin Baby. Oh, okay. Um, which has a three point two on IMDb and looks absolutely abysmal. But you know, fair play for trying. Um, it is a good villain. Now you you know you you they could have done way more with this. Yeah. With that guy, um, you know he he could have easily been in a few more sequels. Uncle Vance. Um. Fucking seriously, Cameron Mitchell was a nightmare in this film. Like you said, he just hammed it up the whole time. And he, he just talks so fucking much. The talk to kill ratio in this film is ridiculous. It, you know, we're watching a film called The Toolbox Murders. We want to see Toolbox Murders. You get it for ten minutes. And whilst he's doing these kills, he can't even wear his fucking balaclava properly. No. You compare um, his performance as Vance... To Piper Laurie's performance in Carrie. Mm. Very similar idea of, um, you know, somebody very God-bothery, very holy, um, very talky. Yeah. And you compare those performances. You know, Piper Laurie does crazy exceptionally well. Yeah. She doesn't ham it up at all. No. Cameron Mitchell... Goes way too far. Yeah. You know, Piper Laurie stays just on the right side of Hammy. Just on the right side. She she plays it perfectly. Whereas Cameron Mitchell, the line, you can't even see the line. No. He's just ridiculous. I, I really, I, it, it fucking annoyed the shit out of me. But then you compare it with Christopher Doyle's Coffin Baby who doesn't have a single line of dialogue... No. ...but does a much better job because he's actually creepy. And he actually... He's a toolbox murderer. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's too different. I don't think for a second that Cameron Mitchell was playing the killer when wearing oh, the bell club, and not no. for a, a single second. Um, he, you know, they couldn't afford him for that many days. Um, but they're uh, two completely different characters. You know, Coffin Baby's more of a... Jason Voorhees type. Yeah. Or um, Victor Crowley. Yeah. You know, uh, completely different characters. Um, but, you know, Coffin Baby does it successfully. Uncle Vance talks shit. Yeah. So, Coffin Baby is our winner and overall winner is Toolbox Murders from 2004. Is and 
Yes, it is. <laughs> and whereas before we've had films like The Hills of Eyes and Little Shop of Horrors where we've said, you know what, the, the remake's the winner, but the first film's good as well. This is the first time we've had a winner that has won by quite a margin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the actual remake as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That is Toolbox Murders. Check out the original and av- no, no, do not check out the original. Don't what am I talking about? Check out the remake. I'm so used You're to saying so it. You're so used to saying, so saying it. Check out the original. <laughs> wow. Check out the remake and avoid the original like the plague. Yes. <laughs> avoid if the you know uh, if you know what's good for you. Avoid the original like a guy with a bad balaclava and a toolbox. So that brings us on to our best and worst of the month. Would you like to go first, or should I? You should, I think. Well, obviously on Sunday we have our BFI Flare episode coming, so I'm going to mention my best of the month. It is a film from BFI Flare, uh, so is my worst. So uh, I'm not going to say an awful lot, because you know, we want you to listen to the episode. We don't want to put it out for nothing. Um, but my best of the month is Mama Gloria. Uh, is that yours? No. No? No. Um... A documentary about a very inspirational person, um, a, a transgendered woman from, uh, who was very prolific back in the 60s, I believe, was it? Was a little further back? No, 60s. 60s. Yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. you know, she, she, you know. Um... Someone I'd never heard of um, before watching the documentary, but someone I felt like I knew everything about after watching the documentary. And you know a documentary's done a good job when, you, when you're given that. Yeah. Um, she's an amazing person. But again, I don't want to talk too much about it because we're going to go into a lot more detail on Sunday. Uh, my worst of the month is Enfant Terrible. Is that your worst of the month? That is my worst okay. of the month. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, share the hatred. <laughs> yeah. Enfant Terrible Which is... incredibly disappointing. Yeah. Um, if anyone is a fan of Fassbinder, it's a director the, f- the film's about, will be really disappointed. Yeah. Really disappointed. Yeah, it, it is a terrible portrayal. Uh, of someone who, you know, wasn't necessarily a great person anyway, but this film would have you believe he never did a single good thing in his entire life. Exactly. But again, but we'll be going into detail yeah, about course. that on Sunday. What's your best of the month? So my best of the month is another documentary. It's called, uh, it's from BFI Flare again. Sorry. <laughs> We're going to more detail. Um, but it's called PS Burn This Letter, Please. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a really lovely documentary about um, the... Well, they were um, dra- drag queens. They didn't. All, not all of them liked being called drag queens. Uh, but drag queens. And female impersonators. Female. Yeah. Uh, yeah, female impersonators, um, who would write letters to this radio host, and um, they were found after the radio host died. He died in twenty ten, um, but they found these letters, and uh, it wasn't fan mail or anything. It was friend. You know, they were friends, and they. Uh, would write these letters and they'd give all the gossip and, and, and all that. And they made a documentary from it and found some of the um, the female impersonators and, and friends and such, and they did a documentary. It's such a really nice documentary that, that, that covers... Yeah. It covers a fair bit of history, but mm-hmm. through the, the, you know, these people's perspectives. And I just really, I really enjoyed it. 
Uh, honourable mentions, because I know you you want to mention some older stuff we've uh, watched per month. Yeah, I do like mentioning the older stuff. I mean, our uh, podcast is mainly about older stuff, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, there is, for, because we've watched so much new stuff recently, I've got two other new releases I'd like to mention as honourable mentions. Uh, first being Voice of Silence, which you watched as well. <laughs> oh my god, brain fart. <laughs> What's Voice of Silence? Voice of Silence is the Korean film about the brothers. Who, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Great film. I enjoyed that. Really, really good. If it wasn't for Mom McGlory, that would have been my best of the month. Really well-paced uh, drama slash thriller with elements of comedy in it. Um, that Again, comments on class and a lot of the things that Parasite commented on. And it's, it's another film that's brought to the forefront because of how well Parasite did. And I'm so glad because... Korean cinema is fantastic, and with this and Minari, you know, it's it's really great that and this is at Glasgow Film Festival. It's really great Glasgow Film Festival showcased a really great selection of Korean films this year. Um, another honourable mention is Zack Snyder's Justice League, a film I will happily hold my hands up and say I was completely wrong about. Um, <gasps> I didn't have much faith in it. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I was glad it was being made because. You know, Zack Snyder's daughter committed suicide and he couldn't finish Justice League and Joss Whedon released whatever the fuck that was meant to be uh, for the original version. And and this fixes all the wrongs from that original version and it's not perfect, but it is a really solid superhero film. Um, it goes on for four hours. Uh, but it, yeah, the, the last act of that film is some of the best action I've seen in any superhero film in, in a while. It is really good. You know, definitely check it out. Um, other honourable mentions are Mother, which we watched for the first time. It was fantastic. Uh, the Prowler and The Blob, two really great 80s horror films. Uh, do you have anything else? Yeah. Oh, honourable mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we... I don't know when our last podcast was. Uh, we watched... A anything of... from the start of March, basically. Okay, I've got from the end of February... When we watched uh, Russ Myers. Yeah, we mentioned that in the last podcast. Did we? Oh, my God. On the last no. original versus remake. Oh, is that, is that, is that <laughs> true? That was near enough at the end of February. The last okay. original versus remake. Um, dishonourable mention. <laughs> Gary made me watch the Amazing Spider-Man films. Uh, they were both shit. Okay, can you please clarify which Spider-Man films you're talking about? The Amazing Spider-Man films. Yes, yeah, but anyone else who's not familiar with those films might have thought you were being sarcastic. No. The, and the Amazing Spider-Man Oh, films. no, Andrew Garfield. The, the, the two with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. Uh, they were really hey, shit. The second one was my first time watching. It was abysmal, so... Yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't I, I'm not a massive superhero movie fan, comic book fan. Um, I've watched all the Marvel ones, apart from the ones Gary says are shit. Um, and I've barely watched any of the DC ones. I mean, Wonder Woman 84 was dire, wasn't it? It was. So I really wasn't interested in four hours of Justice League, so I, I didn't watch it, uh, with Gary. Um, I'd like to give an honourable mention to, um, a, it, it's not a film, it was a um, documentary series on the BBC, released on BBC iPlayer. It was called Can't Get You Out of My Head, uh, An Emotional History of the Modern World. Yeah, this would have been my best of the month, but I didn't think it counted. doesn't count. It's a... It's long. It's a mini-series. It's about eight hours long, isn't yeah. it? 
um, and it takes um, the stories of um, for, oh, how many countries? China, the UK, America, yeah, mm -hmm. and Russia, and then sometimes jumps into to other countries, but takes those countries and it gives a history of um, pretty much post-war it post yeah. history, uh, post-Second World War history, and how history has actually led us to this moment in regards to um, individuality. Um, it's hard to describe. It's really hard to describe. It's the only way I can describe it is that it's a documentary miniseries about everything. <laughs> Essentially... <laughs> But it's about how we've got to this point in history and how we kind of think that this time, our, our times are completely unprecedented. Uh, when in fact, sometimes it's all history repeating itself and how, you know, th this history has, and it, it touches on a few figures I'd never heard of a history that I wasn't aware of. Um, but I, I thought it was really well made. I thought it was fascinating. Um, I've gone on a bit of a documentary binge recently, haven't I? Yes. I've put on a lot of documentaries and this one was top notch. Really enjoyed it. I'd like to see some of his other films. Yeah. The guy who wrote it. Um, but yeah, so that is our best and worst of the month and honourable mentions. Um... We will be back next month with Chris's choice for original versus remake, which we don't know what it is yet. Oh no, we don't. <laughs> well, I, 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 it's I'm gonna, sure gotta be can, something good, please. I'm not sure if I can cope with another shitty film like Toolbox Murders or Carnival of Souls remake or fucking hell. But we'll be back before then, of course, on Sunday with. Uh, our BFI Flair LGBTIQ plus festival episode, and of course on Tuesday with Xander to discuss Aquanoids. Um, until then, I am Dalek Gaz ninety two on Letterbox, Gazmo two hundred five on Instagram, and Gazcruz ninety two on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker eight two three on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterbox. For listening on iTunes, give us a rate, review, and subscribe. Like, follow, everything else, and we will see you on Sunday. Bye.